as we continue to consider the ascension of Jesus, all that it means for our present experience of the reality of his ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father self, I want us to imagine three, I would say, familiar scenes. All three of these are from the Gospels, and all of them are ones that I think we've all thought about, pondered, even imagined for ourselves quite a bit, but I want to see if I can arrange them in such a way that they feel fresh. So let's dive into those. I want you to imagine great crowds around the edge of a river. The grayish, greenish water is flowing by. A breeze is running and flowing through the overhanging tree branches. Out in the river, waist deep, the teacher, John the Baptist, is speaking powerfully of a whole other kingdom, one of heaven, of its ways of living, the feel of it, and especially of the king to come who is its king. Suddenly, the teacher freezes, stops. He is looking up and past the crowds. Everyone on the riverbank turns to see where it is he looks. A man is coming down the same trail all of these have descended. He's coming from the direction of Jerusalem. He then winds his way through the crowds. At the shoreline, he kicks off his sandals. He walks out into the river. His tunic and robe sop up the water. He gets out to John. John has watched him come to him uh, speechless. When they meet in the middle of the river, John is lowering his gaze. They are whispering quietly one to another. Then, just like everyone else, this man turns perpendicularly to John. John places his arms across the man's back, one high, one low, and then lowers him down into the water. He raises him back up with a, a flinging sort of a splashing movement. For some reason, the whole crowd on the riverbank has watched all of this quietly. Then, all at once, the faint blue sky overhead, coated over with thin clouds, seems to tear open like a garment's violent rending. And back of this heavenly tear is a brighter light, a warm yet lightning bright glimpse of another realm. Everyone hunches down in awestruck fear. And out of that heavenly realm comes winging down a single bird, what looks like a dove. And it swoops and twists and turns until it lands on the shoulder of the man next to John. It lands on him and then seems to disappear. And out of that tear in the sky, 
echoing as the rend returns to normal, as the faint blue of the sky closes back over it, comes the booming sound of a voice, like the pealing of a thousand thunders. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. John the Baptist is staring into the midst of the gaping crowds, and he shouts aloud these words at them. The one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The man John baptized is just coming up out of the water. All right, that's scene one. Now, scene two. Peter, James, and John are following Jesus up a narrow trail. He walks on steadily without looking back. The three of them, usually talkative, have grown quiet. They are sweating profusely as they follow. They are nearly to the summit of a mountain to the west of the Galilee. They have been on this trail since morning time. Up ahead, the trail turns back to the left and then arrives at a flat place under some high rocks and thin-leafed trees. Jesus walks to the edge of this clearing and sits down on a boulder. The high rocks and trees are throwing shade across the clearing. The combination of shadows and breeze lends a coolness to the spot. Peter, James, and John sit down upon the ground, then lay down upon the ground, and then fall asleep. The breeze is soothing as they're fading off. They awake to a totally different scene. Straight ahead, Jesus is standing, his face shining as brightly as the light of the sun, his cloak and tunic seeming to be spun of the flashing of bolts of lightning, and he is accompanied by two men. He refers to them by their names, Moses, Elijah. They are speaking to him of the sufferings he must suffer and and the end he must fulfill. All three are similarly clothed with blinding light. Peter, James, and John look on with terror until Moses and Elijah turn to leave. Then, Master, Peter shouts out, it is good that we're here with you. Let me build three shelters, one for you and Moses and Elijah. At which point, a curtain of fog descends like a waterfall falling, covering everything in the clearing. Nothing is now visible to the three disciples. And then a voice rings out like the whisper of the mightiest wind. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
Peter, James, and John throw themselves down on the ground. They press their faces into the dirt. Until, each feeling a hand upon his shoulder, they each raise their eyes to see nothing but Jesus standing there. No Moses and Elijah, no bright lights, no cloud, no heavenly voice. Just Jesus, standing in the clearing, smiling. Now our third scene. It's early evening now, in a square near the temple in Jerusalem. The sun is getting low in the western sky. Great crowds of people stand in shoulder-to-shoulder cramped quarters trying to hear the words that the teacher is speaking. This is the teacher Jesus who'd rode into the city on a donkey and been acclaimed by all the people just days ago. There's a thoughtful look on his face, and he looks out over these great crowds of people. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he says. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in the world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. The teacher looks down at the ground. He seems almost as if in pain. Now my soul is troubled, he speaks to himself, almost whispering. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, the teacher looks up, speaking skyward. Glorify your name. Then a voice suddenly booms down from heaven, carrying weight, falling with power. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd in the square is suddenly terrified, confused. They all look round to understand what the others have heard. A deadly silence now hangs over them. And the teacher says, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the ground, will draw all people to myself. In only three days, this teacher will be crucified. So my friends, if you and I were together, having a cup of coffee, or if you were at anchor on a Sunday and we were listening to those descriptions of those passages, I wonder what it is you're noticing. Is it the words spoken to Jesus from the Father? Is it the feeling of those who were the onlookers to these scenes, whether the great crowds 
whether it's just Peter, James, or John. If you're listening to this and you have thoughts, reach out to me. I'd love to hear what it is that strikes you on this particular day. But as I move on, I have to ask, do you have those scenes? Do you have the words of the Father to Jesus in mind? Because in light of the ascension, I have one more scene to paint for you. So let's dive into it. From the earthly side, there are 11 men now standing, staring up into the bright sky, shading their eyes as they watch this very Jesus having been murdered, having been raised to life, having walked among them for now for 40 days, as he now disappears into the underbelly of a cloud. Remember, he was only just sitting with them, having a chat, smiling his particular smile at their foolish questions, and then he levitated skyward, ascended, as it were, So they stand there, shading their eyes, looking upward. That is their last earthly visual of him. Now to the heavenly. The scene, the throne room of heaven. Imagine its infinite heights, widths, distances, a size and grandeur that beggar all human description. Floors and walls and ceilings and pillars of gold, jeweled surfaces everywhere, an atmosphere glorious beyond all attempts to give it rendering, so I'll stop trying. The inhabitants, myriad upon myriad of angels and saints, crowd its majestic interior. They stand rank upon rank facing the forward reaches of the room. You see, at the front of all this, enrobed in light, enthroned upon the throne of heaven, sits the God of the ages, the I Am, the Father God who is the Father of the Son and of us all. The Father rises to his feet. The endless army of worshipers turn on their heel. All the eyes of heaven are fixed upon the golden doors that give entry to this place. They open. They swing open inward with a mighty movement. And then inward walks the Word, the one who is Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the Savior of the world. Yes, here he comes. Uh, He who had once left this place and then been born among us. He who has set us free to come back with him there. He walks across the threshold of the throne room and just keeps walking. His eyes are upon the eyes of the Father who is smiling. All of heaven erupts in worship. The sound of a million, million voices rise together. The Son walks down the center, approaching unto the Father. His strides are steady and sure. He is laughing. 
He climbs the glorious steps up unto the dais upon which the throne sits, and he and the Father are regarding each other. They are one together and one in their love. The Holy Spirit is like breath between them. And the Father says to the Son, in the hearing of all heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. I have glorified you, and you are now glorified forever. And the Son retakes his seat upon the throne of heaven. And all of heaven continues to worship forever. Friends, it is from this place and in light of knowing the one now seated upon that throne that Paul, the Apostle Paul, eventually wrote the following. Let Christ himself be your example as to what your attitude should be. For he, who had always been God by nature, did not cling to his prerogatives as God's equal, but stripped himself of all privilege by consenting to be a slave by nature and being born as mortal man. And, having become man, he humbled himself by living a life of utter obedience, even to the extent of dying and the death he died was the death of a common criminal. That is why God has now lifted him so high and has given him the name beyond all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, whether in heaven or earth or under the earth. And that is why in the end, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my dearest friends, as you have always followed my advice, and that not only when I was present to give it, so now that I am far away, be keener than ever to work out the salvation that God has given you with a proper sense of awe and responsibility. For it is God who is at work within you, giving you the will and the power to achieve his purpose. My friends, I would add and remind you once again, it is this Son, this Jesus, our friend, who is presently living within you. He is Christ in you, and He is the hope of glory. Let us worship today in this reality that the one that we have come to know on the pages of the Gospels, the one who is the Son of our Father, the one who is well-pleasing in the Father's sight has made us well-pleasing in the Father's sight, that He has returned to the place from which all of this began to rule and reign there and to invite us home. Friends, just as He is a son, we have been made sons and daughters. Let's live today in the sweet relish of this reality. 
Thank you so much for listening.